We come tonight to a passage of God's word that we would be unlikely to turn to in church if it wasn't our practice to work through books of the Bible. There are some who would say that they will wait each week for the Spirit's guidance as to what to preach on. And yet that approach almost inevitably means that passages of the Bible which the Holy Spirit has actually breathed out uh, tend to get neglected. In fact, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he preached through Second Peter in 25 sermons, uh, which is a lot more than I plan to preach in the book. Uh, but, but after he got to chapter 2, verse 9, he, he went straight to chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and I think most preachers who, who preach in Second Peter uh, have probably felt the temptation to do the same. Why is this a passage we might not naturally turn to in church? Well, there are one or two parts of it that are hard to understand, particularly in verses 10 and 11. But as Mark Twain once put it, it wasn't the parts of the Bible that he, he didn't understand that bothered him, but the parts that he did understand. And what might tempt us to skip this part of God's word is that it's all about judgment. The message of Second Peter is that Jesus is coming back and that that reality should affect how we live now. But between the day in which Peter was writing and the day that Jesus will come back, he warns in verse 1 of the chapter that there will be false teachers. Just as in the Old Testament when false prophets arose, so Peter says here in verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. But at this point in the chapter, having already had a section about the judgment of false teachers in verses 4 through 10, we might be tempted to ask whether we really need another one. And yet when false teachers come, whether in person or on our screens, we need to be able to recognise them. But it would be a mistake to limit the warnings of this chapter to false teachers because most of it applies equally well to false Christians or false church members. The sins listed here are characteristic of false teachers, but they're not limited to false teachers. And so while it might not be a passage to which we would naturally turn, it is one that we can't afford to ignore. And so having seen last time the certainty of God's judgment... Uh, with those Old Testament examples, uh, we come tonight to look at the reasons for God's judgment, uh, and we're going to do so under four headings. Uh, I must admit that I did, I did struggle to find a coherent way to, to summarize the teaching of these verses, uh, so, so I went looking for how others had done it. And uh, so our four headings tonight are taken from Gordon Ketty, who was minister in Wishaw many years ago. I wouldn't go along with him in all the details of the chapter, but I find this headings helpful. So, so four reasons why God will one day judge false teachers, uh, and four reasons why we should avoid them now. The big overarching reason why we should avoid false teachers is that they are under the judgment of God. But there are four reasons why they are under the judgment of God. Four telltale signs that they are under his judgment. And so matter, no matter whether they speak the truth in some areas, no matter how relevant some of the things they might 
say will be to, to the culture war, uh, no matter how, how good they are at attacking liberals on some issues, no matter if people send us a, a YouTube video and say, well, I know he's a bit dodgy on the gospel, but this is really good. False teachers should be avoided because they are under the judgment of God. And here are four reasons why they are under the judgment of God. And the first one is that they are proud. They are proud. Uh, We see this in verses 10 through 13. God opposes the proud, as James tells us, but gives grace to the humble. And we see firstly here that God opposes these false teachers because of their pride. The first two words used in the section are bold and willful. Now, boldness isn't always wrong. Paul speaks in, in Philippians 1.14 about the brothers who, having become much more confident in the Lord by his imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of the Lord without fear. But the boldness here is an arrogance and a presumption. And that arrogance shows itself in how they talk in verse 12 and how they live in verse 13. What's their talk like in verse 12? Well, they blaspheme about matters about which they are ignorant. It's better not to speak at all than to talk confidently about things that we don't understand. The book of Proverbs tells us that even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Paul warns Timothy about those who desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In any area of life, the more forcefully we talk about things we don't understand, the more foolish we look to those who understand more than we do. And that's particularly bad when it comes to the things of God. Because it's not just foolish, it's wicked. It's always wrong to say things that aren't true, even if we think they are. But it's particularly bad to to do so when we're speaking about God. And in verses 10 and 11 here, Peter compares this lack of restraint in the false teacher's speech to that of angels. For a clearer understanding of what Peter is referring to here, uh, we can turn forward a few books in the, the Bible to the little letter of Jude. Uh, Jude, uh, the second last book of the Bible, and verse 9. Jude and verse 9, it would be helpful to look that up. Uh, Peter and Jude here are, are both referring to the same event, but Jude goes into more details. Uh, Jude tells us here in verse 9 that when the archangel Michael was contend- contending with the devil and disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, the Lord rebuke you. And if at this point you're thinking, I don't remember that story about Michael and the devil and Moses' body in the Old Testament, will you be right? It's not that that your, your Sabbath school teacher didn't teach you this one. Deuteronomy 34 tells us about the death and burial of Moses, But there's nothing about the archangel Michael who only appears in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. But according to Jewish tradition, when Moses died, Michael came to bury his body. 
the devil appeared and argued that because Moses was a murderer, that Moses' body belonged to him. But Michael simply appealed to the judgment of God, saying, The Lord rebuke you, and the devil withdrew. Now, as we saw the other week, just because something is Jewish tradition, it doesn't mean we have to believe it. But the fact that Jude quotes it as a real event means that we can take it that in this case, Jewish tradition is an accurate record of what had happened. And the point is that even a sinless angel is reserved when he rebukes the devil. Michael didn't presume to take the place of God. He was an archangel. He was highly exalted, but he didn't presume to take the place of God. And yet the false teachers do. And they take the place of God when they contradict the plain teaching of God's word. That word willful in verse 10, bold and willful, means here a refusal to submit to God's will. False teachers don't serve God. They don't submit to God. Rather, they want to be God. They may talk about spiritual realities, but they don't tremble as they do so. They might talk about God, but they have no sense of God. And that shows itself in verse 13 in how they live. Which brings us to our second point this evening. So firstly, tonight avoid false teachers because they are proud. And for that reason they're under the judgment of God. But then the second reason to avoid them, the second reason they're under the judgment of God is because they are immoral. They are immoral. And just before we get into this second point, I think this the second point in particular shows the danger of following a spiritual teacher when you can't see their lifestyle. Whether that's someone on YouTube or someone who turns up at church to preach, but that's all you see of him. He's never in your house and you're never in his. Because if false teachers are known by their lifestyle, then if you can't see what someone's life looks like, you're leaving yourself open to being taken in by them. That doesn't mean that people close to you can't pull the wool over your eyes, but it is harder. So the second reason to avoid false teachers is that they are immoral. How do they live in verse 13? Will they revel in the daytime? The word revel means engaging in a self-indulgent lifestyle. Uh, They don't do it at night time when others do, but they do it in the middle of the day. They are so arrogant that they don't even do it under the cover of darkness. Others might wait until night time to get drunk, but they don't. They don't only not fear the light of the gospel, they don't fear the light of the sun either. And they commit sins during daylight hours, which the average unbeliever would only commit under the cover of darkness. In verses 14 through 16, their lives are marked by greed and sexual sin. In verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. And because their eyes and hearts are full of it, they become totally enslaved to their lusts. They become, verse 14, insatiable for sin. And there's a warning here for all of us. What we fill our eyes with what we fill our hearts and minds with, it will soon bubble over. 
And any sin after it's committed the first time, it becomes easier to commit the second time and the third time. And what you once thought would be a one-time thing becomes an addiction. Because the thing about sin is that it promises so much, but it can never satisfy. Coupled with sexual sin in verse 14 are hearts that are trained in greed. First and foremost, no doubt financial greed. But we could include here any sin where we're discontent with what God has given us. Because that's ultimately what greed is. The word translated greed here is defined as the state of desiring to have more than one's due. So beware of filling your mind with things which will leave you discontent with the things that God has actually given you. And which will leave you dreaming of the perfect house, the perfect family, the perfect lifestyle taken from the pictures and videos you fill your mind with. But the example we're given of here is of financial greed. And that is Balaam. We read the story earlier in Numbers 22. Boys and girls, did you know that there was an animal in the Bible that talked before tonight? This man, Balaam, was on his way to do something bad because he was being given money to do something bad. But the donkey saw the the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, standing in the path with a sword in his hand and wouldn't go any further. And when Balaam started to hit the donkey, God made the donkey able to speak back to him. Imagine that, a donkey speaking. And, And Balaam is so stubborn that he argues back to the donkey. But we read here, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam was in it for the money. Uh, And you look at the salaries of some megachurch pastors, or, or rather you look at their lifestyles, because many of them hide how much they're actually earning. And you wonder whether they're much different. They may be teaching truth from the pulpit or the platform, But what is it that motivates them? Uh, I've never had an Instagram account, uh, uh, but there's an Instagram uh, account called Preachers and Sneakers. It is pictures of preachers wearing expensive trainers, along with a picture of the price tag of how much the trainers are worth, uh, which is usually about $500, but goes up to several thousand dollars. And you wonder what's really important to them. So avoid false teachers, Peter tells us, because they're proud. Avoid them because they're immoral. And thirdly, uh, and leading on from that, avoid them because they are deceivers. They are deceivers. Uh, With sickening regularity, we hear of people being scammed out of thousands of pounds, uh, perhaps even their whole life savings. Someone phones them up or or comes to their door, uh, convinces them to hand over their bank details, and before they realise what's happening, their bank account has been emptied. But false teachers are worse than financial scammers because they will deceive you about your soul if you let them. This trait of false teachers is mentioned back up in verse 13. Peter says that they revel in their deceptions while they feast with you. 
not facing maybe a, a particular reference to the Lord's Supper. They're there, but their hearts aren't sincere. And then in verse 14, we read that they entice unsteady souls. Enticing has the idea of drawing people to them. And the implication there is that unsteady souls are particularly open to deception. We're exhorted again and again in the New Testament to be firm in our faith. That's why we, we called, or one of, the, one of the reasons that we called when we, we, we ran a weekend for, for young people here uh, four or five years ago now, we called it Firm Foundations because of that command to be firm in our faith. P- Peter tells us that in his first letter. Paul tells us it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He tells the Colossians to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. He tells the Thessalonians to stand fast in the Lord. And how are we strengthened in our faith? How do we become firm in our faith? Through the apostolic teaching. That ties in with the importance of keeping gathering together, which we saw this morning. And as we continue to do so then, by God's grace, Acts 16.5 will be true of us when it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith. But if we aren't firm in the faith, then we're in particular danger of being taken in. The very nature of false teachers is that they don't call themselves false teachers. They may seem nice, uh, they may come across as very earnest, uh, and they may be very earnest, but they're seeking to pull you away from the truth of the gospel. And we're warned about the fact that false teachers are deceivers. Uh, Again, in verses 17 through 19. In verse 17, they're waterless springs. Uh, They promise much, but they can't give you the very thing they promise. Just like a spring without water is useless. It's a contradiction in terms. So is a preacher without the gospel. They might be able to speak articulately about many issues, but without the gospel, the well is empty. And then verse 18, for their own selfish reasons, they want to lead people astray. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They entice them by sensual passions of the flesh. And then verse 19, they promise people freedom, but they can't deliver it. Uh, The opening of verse 19 is really powerful. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves. The devil and his servants want us to think that throwing off the laws of God will lead to freedom. But actually those who are really slaves are those who are in slavery to sin. As Jesus himself put it, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so Peter is just following his master when he says in the second half of verse 19, for whoever, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promise you freedom, but they want to enslave you. So the third reason why false teachers are under judgment And the third reason to avoid them is because they are deceivers. The fourth and final reason false teachers are under judgment 
and why we are to avoid them is that they are apostate. They are apostate. Now that word apostate isn't one we tend to use very much, but it's an important word. It's also a desperately sad word because of what it describes. But we need to be aware that there will be people in this category. That is those who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and then go back on it. Now it, it may be that someone makes a profession of faith in Christ, falls away for a while and then comes back to Christ. And that's what we pray for, for those who we know who once seemed to be converted but, but today are, are nowhere spiritually speaking. Uh, Peter talks later here about their last state and uh, we don't know what someone's last state will be until, until the time of their death, if even. But unless they do come back, if they continue down the path of unbelief, then in the words of verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment given to them. Or in the words of verse 20, the last state has become worse for them than the first state. What was their first state? They were unbelievers who were on the road to hell. But what is their last state? That of an apostate. Someone who had embraced the gospel and then turned their back on it. And the Bible is clear that that is far worse than merely being an unbeliever. Being an unbeliever is a frightful thing, but better never to have believed than to believe and turn back. Peter uses graphic imagery here. It would be like a dog returning to its vomit. And as Peter writes, dogs are not pets in his culture. Dogs are vermin. I'm sure we've all seen dogs sniffing at things and licking things that they really shouldn't be. That a dog, after purging itself by throwing up, would go back and, and lick that up again. is stomach churning. But that's what it's like to profess Christ and then go back to your old way of living. People today might call it deconstructing deconstructing their faith they might call themselves ex-Christians but the Holy Spirit tells us that they are, are dogs who've returned to their vomit they are pigs who have washed themselves and then returned to wallow in the mire I heard recently of someone who had been a missionary for many years but had now separated from his wife because he decided he was living in the wrong gender for an unbeliever to do that would be a terrible thing. But for a believer, a professing Christian, for someone who, who has known God's word, someone who has proclaimed that word to others, that is not a position that anyone wants to be in on the day of judgment. Even the great apostle Paul was keenly aware of the danger that if he took his eyes off the Lord Jesus, then after preaching to others, he himself might be disqualified. And didn't Peter know from personal experience the danger of taking his eyes off Jesus? When he got out of that boat and walked on the water, it was all going fine until he took his eyes off Jesus. 
or when Jesus was on trial, when Peter, who, who had protested that, that if everyone else denied Jesus, he wouldn't, and Peter now denies his Lord, what has happened? Peter had forgotten Jesus' words. A passage like this should leave us conscious of, of just how wicked and dangerous false teachers are. It should leave us with a renewed commitment not to have anything to do with them, not to dabble in their teachings. But surely it has to leave us searching our own hearts as well. Surely it has to leave us looking for instances of pride in our own lives, looking for the the beginnings of immorality. Because these things lead to deceit, deceiving others and deceiving ourselves. And unless God intervenes, they lead to apostasy. And if that ever happens to us, it would have been far, far better if we had never professed faith in the first place. So a passage like this should sober us. But it should also drive us all the more to Jesus. Because once we take our eyes off him, then sooner or later trouble will come. False teachers spell death, death for themselves, death for those taken in by them. But look to Jesus and you will live. Keep looking to him and you will live. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Amen. Well, God has given us words to sing to fit every occasion. And... After a sobering word like this, we can turn to words which express what, by God's grace, are surely the desires of our hearts right now. Psalm 141. Psalm 141. And we'll sing the first five verses on page 345. Psalm 141, starting on page 345. It's verses 1 to 5. We sing in the second half of verse 3 oh let not any evil thing then turn my heart away are we are we conscious that that's what we're doing if we're dabbling with sin we're we're letting in something that wants to turn our hearts away we sing in verse 4 let me not practice wickedness with men of evil deed and do not ever let me on their delicacies feed It is bad for them that they do these things, but it would be far, far worse for us. And then in verse 5, we pray that if we do start to go astray, that God would send his people to us. Again, the importance of gathering, the importance of being in community with God's people. That God would send people who would strike us with their words, if necessary, in order to bring us back. Oh, let a righteous man strike me in kindness to correct. It's oil upon my head, so let my heart not it reject. So tune 147, St. Kilda Psalm 141, will stand to sing praise. <laughs> 